Back in the 1700s when uh, kids played board games, not video games, my grandfather taught me how to play checkers. I was only uh, 10 years old at the time, uh, but that didn't keep him from beating me every game. He never let me win. He was a uh, drill instructor in the Marines, and so playing checkers with him felt a little bit like boot camp. But even though he didn't let me win, every once in a while, he would allow one of my checker pieces to cross all the way over to his side of the board. And when it did, I would arrogantly yell out, king me, which meant he had to put another uh, checker on top of my piece. And now as the king, that piece could move any which way it wanted to, backward, forward. How many of you have played checkers before? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and and I felt like I ruled the world, you know, I was, I was a king now, and I think the king me pride went to my head. Now, my grandfather was still the one in charge, and the more arrogant I became in my king me status, the quicker he would end the game with a victory. The Old Testament kings of Judah in the book of Second Chronicles display the king me arrogance, doofusness, really, of a 10-year-old playing checkers with his grandfather. See, the Jews, the people of God, wanted a king. They wanted to be like every other nation in the world, and so they asked God to give them a king. They wanted a monarchy. They wanted to be king-ruled, just like everybody else. And God said, I'll give you a king, but you're not going to be a monarchy, king-ruled. You're going to be a theocracy, God-ruled. But I'll let you have a king. And pretty much every king of Judah forgot that God was the ultimate king. And when they did, they lost their crown or their dignity or, in some cases, their life. Now, there are some notable exceptions among the kings like David, uh, Hezekiah, Josiah. But even those kings displayed, again, the 10-year-old doofusness, arrogance that I had with my grandfather. And like my grandfather, God was the one who was always in charge. I just want to tell you as we head into this series this month, the kings of the Old Testament are complicated. (laughs) They're complex. Which is probably why they don't get a whole lot of press and sermons. In fact, in all the years I've been a pastor, I have never, I don't think, preached from the book of Second Chronicles until now. Because the kings lived messy lives. Uh, one minute they're godly and doing good. The next minute they're ungodly and doing evil. One minute they're instituting the worship of Yahweh, the worship of God. The next minute they're leading the people in idolatry or the oppression of the poor. One minute they're humble. One minute they're proud. One minute they're contrite. One minute they're callous. One minute they're generous. One minute, they're ridiculous. The kings have incredible spiritual highs and horrific spiritual lows. I guess what I'm saying is, the kings are a lot like us. We know what it's like to have a complicated, complex life. We uh, don't have neatly packaged, well-ordered lives. None of us are entirely good or entirely evil. Um, I mean, think about it. When was the last time you raced 
a 75-year-old woman to a checkout line in Walmart. You are not that good. And you might even be a 75-year-old woman, and you probably did it too. Or on the bypass, racing past a car on the bypass that was doing 20 in the passing lane and offering an angry look. Or a what-were-you-thinking stare. None of us are entirely good all of the time. So as we head into this September King Me series, I want us to consider not only ways that we can avoid kingly corruption, but I want us to consider ways that we can access God's amazing grace. And the first king we're going to look at is King Asa. His story is found in Second Chronicles uh, 14 to 16. It's a rather amazing story. Uh, right off the bat, the chronicler gives us Asa's spiritual resume. And listen to these words that describe King Asa. Second Chronicles 14, verse 2, and I'll read and following. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and the incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with Asa during those years, for the Lord gave him rest." That's quite a resume. Asa did what was good and right. He, he removed the junk. He took out the trash, and then he brought in the good. He took out the trash. He, he removed uh, the foreign altars to the worship of foreign gods. He removed the sacred stones, destroyed the high places, got rid of the Asherah poles, all symbols of the worship of gods who were no god. He was so zealous for God so in love with God, he actually deposed, removed his grandmother from her position as queen mother. This is at the end of chapter 15. He just booted her right off the throne. You've got to really love God to put your grandmother in her place. And Asa did. But the big moment for Asa came just a few verses later. Here's the situation. Zerah, the Cushite, and his army is coming against Asa and the people of Judah. Now, the people of Judah, Asa's army is pretty large. They have 580,000 soldiers at the time. But King Zerah and the Cushites, it says, has 1,000 upon 1,000 soldiers, which is another way of saying 1 million soldiers. They outnumber the Jews two to one, the Cushites do. Not only that, but they have 300 chariots, which is a major military advantage. Asa is outmatched. The people of Judah are going to go down. But instead of turning and running, Asa faces the Cushites head on. And in verse 11... Here's what Asa does. Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, 
for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. Verse 12, the Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. God showed up and did a miracle. There is this pattern in Asa's life that I just want to sort of draw out. It's so obvious. God gives complete rest to those who completely rely on him. That's the story of Asa's life. You ever, uh, when you had little kids, I remember when I had little kids, I would, I would uh, they were babies, don't call social services, but I would, I would throw them up in the air. You ever do this with their kids? Am I the only criminal here? I mean, you throw them up five feet, six feet in the air, and uh, it's like they never knew they were in danger. They were never fearful. At least my kids didn't, didn't seem to be afraid. They were smiling, you know, ear to ear, because they had confidence in my reliability, they knew I would catch him, and I caught him every time. Now, their mother's face showed signs of mistrust. But their face was at complete rest. They knew I would catch them, and I did. That's the kind of confidence Asa has in God. He relies on God over and over and over and over again, and therefore he experiences complete rest, peace. Faithful trust equals supernatural peace. That is the story of Asa's life for two chapters. In chapters 14 and 15, that's Asa's story, but then in chapter 16, His faith goes south. The kingdom at the time is experiencing civil war, the people of God. There's a, just like there was in this country, right? There's a civil war between the north and the south. There's a divided kingdom for the Jews. And in the north is the kingdom of Israel, and King Baasha of Israel is starting to come against Asa, king of Judah, in the south. Civil war. And Asa's frightened. For 35 years, he has relied upon God to show up and do for him what he could not do for himself. But in year 36 of his reign as king, Asa comes undone. There's not only a civil war going on between Israel and Judah, north and south, there's actually a civil war going on in the soul of Asa. He's wrestling with whether or not he's going to rely upon God when the rubber meets the road at the very end of his rule. Chapter 16, verses uh, 1 and following. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. So the, so the Israelites, the northern kingdom, is oppressing the southern kingdom, Judah, keeping people from going out and coming in. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and out of his own palace, and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, a foreign king who was ruling in Damascus. Asa said, to Ben-Hadad, 
Let there be a treaty between me and you as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Don't miss this. Asa relied on God, chapters 14 and 15. But now when faced with the threat of King Baasha of Israel, he takes the silver and gold, the loot that God had given him from that victory over the Cushites, that miraculous victory in chapter 14 that Asa had actually put in the temple to God. Asa's taking those possessions to purchase a political alliance with a foreign king, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad. He's relying more on his possessions and his political alliances than he's relying upon God. And then in chapter 16, at the very end of his life, just about, verse 12, not only was he relying upon possessions and political alliances, he's also more reliant upon physicians than God to heal him. Verse 12 of chapter 16, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a uh, disease in his feet. It wasn't some stanky sort of thing. It was an actual disease, probably gangrene or something like that. And though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. What in the world happened to Asa? Why did his faith go south? 35 years as king, he relied on God. And he saw the power of God. And then in year 36 of his reign, at the very end of his life, he stops relying on God. He doesn't get better spiritually. He gets bitter spiritually. And I wonder why. God doesn't give up on Asa. I love this about God. He's so merciful. And in this case, he actually sends uh, the prophet Hanani, chapter 16, verses 7 to 10. He sends Hanani to confront Asa, to get him to turn back and do the right thing and rely on God again. He says to Asa, you relied on, the, uh, on a foreign king and not God. You'll bear the consequences, but turn back. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth that he might strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed, fully reliant on him. But Asa doesn't turn back. In fact, Asa gets real angry with Hanani. And he puts the prophet in stocks. He chains his hands to his feet, which is rather painful and uncomfortable. And then he starts to oppress the people. Now on Asa's resume, early it was he did good and right. That was his resume. Now his resume is he is the first royal persecutor of a prophet in the Bible. How's that for a resume? He's defensive. He's arrogant. He's apathetic. He's angry. I actually, I struggled with uh, trying to diagnose his spiritual problem, honestly. Was it, was it mainly apathy that caused him later in life to go south? Was it anger? So I was telling my 13-year-old Sam Ace's story. 
told him the whole thing as succinctly as I could. Um, and I said, Sam, what do, you, what do you think Ace's problem was? And I didn't see it, but he did. He said, fame. He was citing how after the Cushite victory in chapter 14, that miraculous victory where God showed up, even though it was God who did it, Sam thought, and I agreed, that it kind of went to Ace's head. Maybe he became too big for his britches. And he struggled with arrogance. And maybe prideful arrogance led to spiritual apathy, which led to violent anger. I don't know. But all I know is that at the end of his life, after spending most of his life faithfully relying upon God, Asa died a cantankerous, cranky, arrogant, apathetic, angry old man. And I won't know why, but I can relate. I have a confession to make. I know how people love to lean in for the pastoral confession. Here's my confession. I have to admit that I can relate to Ace's spiritual deformation. His slip, his slide from reliance to arrogance. Because I've been there. It took him 36 years into his career as king. It only took me about one year into my career as a pastor to suffer in the same way. I was uh, uh, in my early 20s, a senior at college, and God called me to pastor uh, a church 15 minutes off campus. The average age of the people in the church was like 125. I mean, these, these people had been walking with the Lord three times longer than I had been alive. What could I possibly tell them that they hadn't already heard? What sermon could I preach that they haven't already heard? I was scared to death of preaching. I really was. I only had one class up to that point in preaching. I had very little experience. I had no skill. I was completely reliant upon God to help me make connections between me and them in the preaching event. I'm 22 years old, 23. How can I relate to them? How can I, how can I put myself into the scuffed-up, pointy-toed shoes and bib overalls of senior men and the flowery dresses and knee-high stockings of senior women? How in the name of Lawrence Welk and Johnny Carson am I going to relate to them? And I was scared. And I prayed and labored over every word I preached. Every Saturday night, man, I just... And that was good for me. I was deeply dependent, fully reliant upon God to do for me what I had no experience doing. Preaching was a spiritual discipline for me. And then something happened. After a year and a half, I learned how to preach. Got some experience. Took another class, read a few more books, got some skills. Maybe too many senior women in the church pinched my cheek and said I was awesome. I don't know. But it all went to my head. And I became less reliant upon God and more dependent upon myself. Less God-reliant, more self-confident. And I lost my preaching mojo. And in fact, hated preaching. So I can relate. If it can happen to old Asa... 
And it can happen to young Lenny. It can happen to you too. If you've been walking with the Lord for a decade or two decades or 50 years, take heed. Because if you're not careful, at the end of your life, you can become more self-reliant than God-dependent, more arrogant and apathetic and angry. And you can start to feel like your best years of spiritual vitality are behind you, not before you. And when you do, that's the beginning of the end for you and for me. Lakeview Wesleyan Church, this happens to churches too, doesn't it? If you feel like Asa, like for Lakeview Wesleyan Church, your best years of spiritual vitality and ministry are behind you and not before you, you will idolize the past and you will fear the future in a way that keeps you living a fully alive, God-reliant existence in the present. It happened to anybody and any church. We have on our money in this country, in God we trust. <laughs> but let's be honest, man. We, we, like Asa, we trust more in gold than God sometimes. <laughs> I do. What are you most tempted to rely upon? when you have the threat of a King Baasha coming against you or some weird, funky disease in the feet? <laughs> Is it a temptation to rely upon your successes, your accolades, your resume, your money, your relationships, food, drugs, alcohol, entertainment, sex? I guess the question that haunts me from Asa's life is this one. Here's what haunts me. Does God seem greater as I grow older? I just don't want to go out like Asa. With our kids, we tell them the more you grow up, as you grow up, as you become a teenager, the, the less reliant you should be on your parents and the more independent. <laughs> I'm telling my kids this now. There are three teenagers I got at home. Pray for me. Fast for me. Help me feed my 16-year-old son who eats everything in the house. But I tell them, listen, the cheese stick wrapper on the, on the coffee table, I'm not going to throw it out for you. Throw it out. Grow up. My daughter takes a shower, and she sheds her hair all over the place. And when she was two, it was fine. She's 14. Go get the hair. I'm not doing it for you. Clean the shower. I tell my boys, put the seat up and then put it down. I'm not doing it for you. A sign of maturity is becoming, for our kids, is becoming more independent, less reliant upon parents, right? But in the spiritual life, it's the opposite. The more spiritually mature we become, the more reliant upon God we should be. As we grow older, God should seem greater. God is searching. He's on the prowl. He's on the hunt for people fully reliant upon him. The first uh, memory verse I remember remembering 
is 2 Chronicles 16.9. I encourage you to remember it. Memorize it. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him, fully reliant upon him. I want the eyes of God to rest upon me as someone fully reliant. God is looking for a few good men and a few good women who are completely reliant upon him, like a baby thrown five feet in the air, smiling with glee, falling into his arms. That's what God wants. I, uh, I met last, a couple weeks ago, Mrs. McIntyre. I don't even know if she's here. Is she here? She's 95 years old. She goes to this church. I didn't ask her permission for this. I hope she'll forgive me. I think she will. She seems like that kind of type. And I had a conversation with her, and she's 95. I think the oldest person who attends this church, and uh, she stood up, which for me was a miracle. I hope I can stand when I'm 95. But not only that, she, she talked to me. We conversed, and her face radiated at 95 years old, which is about double my age. Her face radiated confident reliance in God that gives her this face of peaceful rest. She said it without words. I rely on God and he gives me rest. I want to go out like that. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. In fact, the Apostle Paul and Asa are like opposites. Asa Starts off here spiritually and ends up like this at the end of his life. Paul starts out here and ends up becoming better, not bitter, with age. This is Paul in a Philippian, uh, it's his letter to the Philippians. He's in a Roman uh, prison at the end of his life as an old man. And you heard Pastor Tim walk so thoroughly through that letter from Paul to the Philippian church. And then Jared, Pastor Jared last week uh, concluded that series, knocking it out of the park. I, I, love, I love, though, that backdrop because Paul's an old man in a Roman prison. He should be calling it quits now. He just won't shut up about Jesus and he keeps getting in trouble. The dude should retire. I mean, he's at, he's at the pinnacle of his ministry and his spiritual vitality, ministry and maturity. It's time to retire, dude. Take it easy. And if I'm Paul, man, I'm calling Silas. Hey, bro, let's, let's go south. Let's go to Brooksville Retirement Community in Florida. Let's play golf all day. We can get Timothy and Titus to caddy for us. Let's get out of here, man. We've, we've already done our thing. Now, by the way, I have nothing against golf although it takes a piece of my soul every time I play. And I have nothing against Brooksville Retirement Community in Florida. I was there a couple years ago, preached. Beautiful people. It's like, it's like youth group for senior citizens there. <laughs> they have 10 o'clock at night ice cream socials. And you should see the toppings. These, those people wore me out. I don't think they slept, except during my sermons. That's when they slept. <laughs> so nothing against them. I just don't see that in Paul. I don't see Paul ever accepting that his best years of ministry and spiritual vitality are behind him, not before him. I just don't see it. Does this sound like a guy who uh, is tired and ready to retire at the end of his rope in prison because he won't shut up about Jesus? He says in chapter 3 of Philippians, not that I have already obtained all this or have already reached my goal, but I press on. 
to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. Brothers and sisters, uh, this thing I do, I forget what is behind, I strain toward what is ahead, I press on to take hold of the goal for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. And then he says this, and we often leave this out. All of you who are mature, truly mature, should take just a view as I have taken. (laughs) As we grow older, does God seem greater? How do we do this? How do we become more, not less reliant on God as we grow older? So that we experience true rest no matter what's going on around us. Reliance equals rest. And I talked to some of you this week, and I know you're tired, and you're hurting, and you need rest. Here's how you rely on God. Spiritual bungee jumping. Can I talk about bungee jumping for a minute? How many of you have bungee jumped? Anybody in the house bungee jump? Yeah, my wife's raising her hand because we did it together. And that's the place we did it. We were on our way to do some ministry in Australia. Had three days in New Zealand back in 2002. And we saw this place uh, in Lake Tapo, New Zealand. Uh, bungee jumping, we looked into it. We discovered it was really, 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 really cheap. Way cheaper than it would be in the States. That should have been the first red flag. <laughs> but it wasn't. Really cheap. And then we looked around at the people running the show. And... Uh, From my perspective, it looked like they just came back from a cannabis festival. So so we decided to just sort of throw caution to the wind. They came over. We were kind of harnessed up, tandem, you know, by the ankles. They came over with a waiver, which should have been the third red flag. We're signing a waiver, and they tell us at that point, uh, you will drop 154 feet and pick up speeds of 43 miles an hour. We didn't care. Sign away. And we jumped, kept our eyes open the whole time, 154 feet head first, and then the, the sort of the bungee goes, pink, and you pop back up. Nobody told us that if you leave your eyes open, even down to the bottom, you could lose your eyeballs. I mean, that's the truth. So, so we came out with blood vessels broken all around our eyes. It was awesome. <laughs> well worth the $10 we spent for it. Now, we were willing to trust in a cord we could not test and people we did not know with our future, with our lives, and we launched. How could we not trust and rely upon a God who, though we cannot see, is more real than the air we breathe, and he's been there every step of the way of our lives, who has given us victory after victory after victory against all the Cushites around us. How could we not trust him? So we're going to do some spiritual bungee jumping. The next time you are faced with a threat, a conflict, an illness, a financial crisis, spiritual bungee jump. Here's how you do it. You pray. Prayer is the metric by which we plot ourselves on the arrogance reliance pole. I don't mean just pray, though. Here's what I mean. 
when you find yourself in a crisis, pray first, pray fiercely, pray frequently. Pray first, priority. Pray fiercely, intensity. Pray frequently, consistency. Because the eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout the earth. And when they do, I want his eyes, Lakeview Wesleyan Church, to rest upon us. A church who is fully reliant upon him. Let's pray. I want to I give you a chance to uh, get in a position where you can pray fiercely about a King Baasha coming against you or a severe disease in your feet, stuff like that. And maybe for you, praying fiercely means sitting down and being comfortable. For some of you, it means running to the altar to pray about a situation that's way too big for you but not too big for God. That's where I'm heading in a minute. So if it's standing, stand. If it's kneeling where you are, kneel. If it's sitting where you are, sit. If it's coming to the altar to pray, I want you to pray fiercely about whatever situation has come to mind during this sermon. Pray as if your life depends on it. As if you need God to show up or you are dead. So find a, I'm going to lead us in prayer, but find a posture where you can, in which you can pray fiercely. Altar, kneel where you are, Stand where you are. Don't be too proud to find a position that helps you. You can lay flat on the floor if you want. Face down. That's what Moses did. Face down. Face down. (laughs) So uh, don't worry about being proper here, okay? Let's take off the proper masks and get in a position in which we, like a baby, fall into the arms of our Father. Let's not outgrow our need for God. Let's not get too big for our britches. I want to give you two or three minutes to pray. We don't often have awkward silence in the service, but that's okay. This isn't a show. (laughs) We want God to show up. So let's just have two minutes or so just praying fiercely for God to show up in whatever situation's on our mind. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray fiercely. We pray for our family members and friends. 
who have yet to come face to face with your love in a way that transforms them and makes life worth living. We pray for our loved ones, or for ourselves even, who are experiencing illness that cannot be remedied, it seems. Show up. Lord, we pray for this church that you would empower us to be your hands and feet in Grant County and throughout the world that you created in love. Lord, help us to get off our duffs. Help us to, to get in the game. Help us to do what we can to partner with you in redeeming and restoring this world you created in love. Lord, where there's relational rifts that we can't fix, would you show up? Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Where there's addiction we can't overcome, show up. Do for us. Help us. Lord, some of us in this room are struggling with depression, fear, anxiety, self-hate, shame, guilt, insecurity, inferiority, inadequacy. God, show up. In this moment, we as a church do some spiritual bungee jumping. We fall into your arms. We rely upon you and recognize that is our rest. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. The kingdom of God is upside down in the fact that we become more mature by becoming more childlike. Amen. But let's leave in the words of Paul from the letter of Philippians. Hear this. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.